0: Okay, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Lakes International Comic Art Festival. I mean, you've probably been here all weekend. You've heard this before, but um, I'd like to thank the Arts Council of England for sponsoring this event. Um, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll warn you now when I hosted the writers' panel this time last year with John Wagner and Ian Rankin, the door jammed and they had to cut through with an axle grinder. So anything wow. could happen. Did they keep talking
1: until everybody got out?
0: <laughs> we started talking and then it was so loud we had to wait for it to finish. It was exciting, there. Um I would like to welcome Sais Maria, Rob Williams, and Garth. All three of you have worked in British comics and in American comics for a number of years. Um, and I think you all got your big break on either 2000 AD or a sister title, uh, Crisis in the sense of got. Garth. How did you get your foot under the door to start off with? Who's gonna go first? This is Clair. Yeah. Paul Rank,
1: Paul Rank.
2: <laughs> I am, um, I'll do it instead. Nice. Um. <laughs> I was in a pub, which is where all great stories start, and um, I did a book, um, a first comic called Class War, and uh, I pitched, I think, two things to 2018. I've told this story many times over years. One of which, David Bishop, replied, uh, wrote me a letter back saying, congratulations, you have sent in the most unoriginal feature <laughs> shock we have ever received in 2018. So that was nice. Um, Good old dear. Yeah, friendly. Um, but then um, I was in a pub, and Andy Diggle was there, who was editor at the time, and Andy liked Class War. And he said you should write for 2000 AD, and it's just I managed to circumnavigate the the future shock way in basically, of doing occasional ones, and he just offered me a series. So um,
0: yeah. But then, in a way, by starting out with an independent comic publisher, that was your way of... Yes. Creating. So how did you get um, Class War at ComicX?
2: Um, they were very enthusiastic and very naive because and I didn't know what I was doing as well. So I just turned up at Bristol Comic Con, first Comic Con I'd ever been to, and I'd written the full script. It wasn't even a pitch and I just gave them this wedge of paper and said, I'd like, this is my comic. And then they rang me about three months later and said, um, yeah, we want to do it. So I was right place, right time. But it was just a case of just me not having the foggiest what I was doing and just writing something that I thought would be fun, to be honest.
3: Yeah, I was right place, right time as well. Um, I was, uh, I submitted. A couple of ideas to Crisis, which some people might remember. It, it was, as you say, a sister title to 2008. It was a political comic. I found this out later, but um, essentially the seals were slipping badly and they were desperate. And of course, at that time, so many British writers and artists had gone to the States because they could get better deals there. And um, for uh, British editorial, it was a case of beggars can't be choosers. So, um, I called them up, uh, it was actually my 19th birthday, I just thought, worth, worth a punt I suppose and um, expecting, yeah we'll get back to you kid and instead I got, oh yeah we wanted to talk to you about that and purely because they needed something fast, uh, they took a chance on a complete novice, so yeah, right place, right time. Um,
1: I'm, mine's very boring, uh, I discovered 2008 quite late. Um, was an arrogant asshole and decided that if somebody else could do it, then I could do it better. Um, so I didn't change. I know, right? <laughs> it's, it's the beginning of the story. Uh, spent about three years sending in really bad Future Shock submissions. I too have a David Bishop story. In fact, I have two. Uh, I have one rejection letter from him that says, um, "I'm sorry, Simon." I'm afraid you just don't have the spark of crazed ingenuity it takes to write for 2000 AD. Thank you Dave. And then the next one, I obviously ignored that and carried on going. The next one that I get, and I shit you not, this is true. It says, no, 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 no. (laughs) It's no, (laughs) yours,
0: Dave. Um, What was that in response to
1: Just another bevy of utterly generic crap future shots. And then I was about like 17, doing all this, and then at some point I realized that if the guy is being good enough to send me advice in his rejection letters, I should probably pay attention to it, um, started doing that,
0: and eventually got a gig. Um, it's that simple, very boring. Nice. And in terms of sending <coughs> his first scripts, um, had you looked at the way the comic strips were written in general, that you thought perhaps they should be laid out in a certain style to make it easier for the editor, or did you think as long as it's intelligible as a comic script, and has ideas that might excite an editor, so that's the way to do it. I think, I mean, in my case, it was
1: to, to get the foot in the door. The real talent is not necessarily writing a script, it's pitching the idea, with the future shock in particular. And then everything else is just craft, and you can sort of learn it or choose to, to wing it, as most of us did. How about you, Rob?
2: Um, yeah, so he's right. I mean, it's just uh, it, at the time, it was like there was no. It was before the internet, so there was no comic scripts out there really to find. There was like a John Wagner script in a Dread annual or something, you know, which was... That's the one I used. So that's (laughs) shit, that's how you do this. And that was like, I sort
1: of... And there was, I think... uh, That's um, the one with the classic panel three, Dread. Grim, Grim. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um,
2: But, um, yeah, so it's, I mean, if you want to actually... It's not the way I did it, but if you want work, you really need to be able to practice... The pitch and sort of you know tighten up the pitch and everything and just sort of have that wonderful thing of being able to sell something in about in a sentence you know and immediately go i'll publish that i mean everything beyond that is is the size is the craft side of it mm-hmm.
0: i mean garth that first script that you had published by um crisis troubled souls mm-hmm. was obviously also responding to the troubles uh, in ireland yeah Crisis being a political comic, do you think that was something that also piqued their interest, the fact that you were doing something that was political? Uh,
3: Yeah, I'd actually spoken to Steve McManus when the Crisis signing tour came to Belfast uh, the the previous October, Um, and I'd asked him, would you be interested in a story about the situation here? And he said, that's exactly the kind of thing we're after. Uh, So that was a bit of opportunism, really. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it, it was at that time when there was this theory that adult comics were going to be a thing, um, you're talking about the, the era of Deadline, Crisis, Revolver, Blast, Strip, uh, all those things, I mean it, it was kind of a false dawn to be honest but for a brief period yes there was interest and there was money to spend and that was when I slipped in I suppose.
0: Obviously you've all uh, written stories that have gone on for a certain number of issues, whether they've been serialized in 2000 AD or individual comics. How often have you found that when you started something, it has gone into a very different direction? I mean, even thinking of Troubled Souls, uh, off that begat a slightly more comedic sequel for a few troubles more, and then that begat a completely ridiculous, surrealist yeah. comic fix. Yes. I'm assuming you weren't planning that for the start. No, no not at all. I mean
3: when I started writing Troubled Souls uh, I had no real ambition beyond beyond it. Obviously I wanted a career in comics but I focused totally on Troubled Souls. What I found was that um, as word of the story spread because it did, it did develop a certain reputation and it was reprinted in a nice hundred page graphic novel full-color artwork that was that was a great sort of kind of portfolio in a way of of my work and American publishers picked up on it but I had the sense that I was being pigeonholed as this sort of terribly sincere honest political writer, no really <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I thought I need to do something to show that I've got more than one string to my bow and that was why we did, John McCrae and I did for a few Troubles More because we just wanted to do something ridiculous and then when the two characters become detectives, that becomes dicks, and it just goes completely insane. Um, but I suppose it, it all had its roots in the appallingly sincere troubled souls.
0: Yeah. You guys, have you ever started a story where you think it's going to go in one direction and it goes in a completely different way, even a different genre? Temptation to make a marriage joke here is quite strong. Should the audience.
2: My ex might. be no. I think it. I think it always kind of has. You kind of you want to know the end before you go in, and you have theme in you know in mind and things like that. And very often you will get halfway through, and you'll kind of go, "It's not that at all. It's this." And sort of, it, you've you've got to allow it to do that. That's part of the process. You know, it does happen. Um, things go in, do go in completely different directions you intended. I sort of, you know, there's a kind of myth about the writer has to, sort of, everything has to be meticulously planned beforehand. And that's true, but you've got to give yourself a leeway to kind of, you know, something will flick, you know, and you'll kind of go, oh, this is a far better way of doing that. And suddenly you're off in a little bit of a different direction. But I think, you know, I'm going to use a theme word and you can sort of tut and kick me again. Right. But it's. Um, but I think as long as you stick true to the theme you know then you've got the, the leeway to actually veer around wherever you want to go along the way basically if mm-hmm. you take away if you if a, you lose the theme suddenly you kind of go you get halfway through and think the thing's lost its spine you're not entirely sure what you're writing anymore why you're writing it but um, I think yeah you've, you've got to be able to sort of improvise a lot and that's just part of the job I think yeah look at
3: the if you look at the classic era uh, of Judge Dredd written by John Wagner and Alan Grant that was effectively their end They would start out with a rough sense of where they were going, but not really knowing the ending. And uh, I mean, that could work brilliantly, the Apocalypse War. Mm. Uh, sometimes it didn't work so well, City of the Damned. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the whole, you know, that, that, sort of, um, that sort of freedom that they granted themselves led to all sorts of wonderful, wonderful work. Mm. I tend to start,
1: like, I've never started a story that I didn't know how it would end. Um, which can be a problem if you are in that lucky situation of having pitched a mini-series and it does well enough that it becomes an ongoing and you're not shit, I need to find a new ending. And there is that, it sounds a bit wanky, apologies, but there is that thing where the character sort of takes over and the ending you expected the character to have ends up being something different, but at least you're guiding as you start. To, to Rob's point about theme, I read a thing and i always waffle on about this because I think it's, it's something to hold up, I don't think any of us really are, are this... Um, focused when we sit down to write, but anybody seen Wally? You know the, the Disney movie, with the little robot? The guy who wrote that, whose name I can never remember, you'll know. Alright, useless. Um, <laughs> the guy who wrote that, he is a massive fan of the controlling idea to a, a sort of ridiculous degree, whereby you, you don't just have a sort of vague, nebulous theme, you have this statement, a statement of fact which you boil down to find exactly the right words. You know, it's about the choice of the exact language you use. And for Wally it's five words. It's irrational love overcomes life programming. Mm-hmm. Now, everything in that movie, from the overall story to what happens in every scene, to the character arcs, to every dialogue is a version of that story, even if it's a totally subverted version of it. And I love that because it means that even if you end up going in completely the wrong direction or the character takes over, you you have this thing that keeps dragging you back. This is what my story is about. So I try to do that, and I, without very much success, because it's it's often um, you don't have quite as much time and luxury to be that precise in comics. But it's a nice thing to aspire to. I think theme actually sort of sort of
2: sort of saved my sort of process along the way, because uh, you can you can do that thing. There's a billion different ways that a story can go, but a theme keeps you on the path basically. And I like think that that. The, the, the culmination of the story either proves the theme correct or, mm. or disproves the theme. You know, it can go one of two ways. But I think so much of writing is about these these little craft sort of um, paths that keep you going in 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 the right direction and not getting lost with a billion, um, you know, a billion ways the story could go. Because then you end up just staring out the window, paralysed. by But still, I mean,
1: like stuff like Preacher, presumably you didn't know exactly how long that was going to be before you started it. No
3: so it was uh, leap into the dark and cross your fingers really um i I wrote about 20 issues of that before i figured out how it was going to end right the first two years were really i said this yesterday i really proceeded on instinct uh like let's put on a bit here and let's try this um and then around about issue 20 it was like oh i know where it's going and then a few years later when i started the boys um i had a lot more of it figured out i knew how it would end i knew many of the main scenes so there were still things i came up with as i went but uh, yeah that was uh, that was a bit tighter
0: that one. you have five words though? ultimate power doesn't necessarily corrupt that <laughs> couldn't get
3: it down to five but i think it was something like superheroes are twats they need a slab these are the boys to do it
0: <laughs> i think that was it um back in the day there used to be kind of a career path. In British comics, that you probably would start out in 2000 AD, yeah. and you'd hope you'd get future shock to series American.
3: to America. Yeah. Um,
0: as such, all of you did kind of go down that process to a certain extent, and indeed you've all read, you've all written either Judge Dread or Dreadverse um, stories. Kind of entering your own ideas into a long-running narrative like that is that daunting or is exciting in a way because you know you are adding a little bit of mythology.
3: Well, I made a total hash of it. So probably better you answer that one. I think it's kind of
2: both. You can't. You can if, with any of these things. You can. You you can't let yourself get get caught up in this forty years of history of like amazing stories. And if you kind of go, oh Christ, how am I going to write some a dread as good as, you know, some of the best John Wagner dreads or something? Again, you'll just paralyze yourself. So you just. Um, you just try and just try and tell a good story that interests you. I mean, that's the bottom line with it. It's just like you, I don't think you you can get too caught up. And you can't pat yourself on the back too much and and I'm adding to the mythology. It's just like it's if you think it's a good story and it's got something to say about the character. I mean, I like writing dread because I the thing that clicked for me for writing dread was was writing the man rather than him as some kind of Robocop kind of figure, you know, and just um, I like the fact that you can write all the emotions of dread beneath the stoicism of the sort of you know the grim this exterior where he says two words, mm-hmm. but there's all this other stuff churning underneath and everything, his own motives. And that that's just what got me excited and why
1: I think I've given me a bit of life actually writing the character. Mm-hmm. I've always been too intimidated by him to do that. Mm-hmm. When I've ever written dread, he's a, a fulcrum around which the stuff I'm interested in turns. You know, I like the city, I like the madness, I like the stuff that dread is very against whenever I've had the opportunity to get inside his head I don't know what's going on
2: well that's why I, I did that and, and I was kind of felt like I was always surface skimming it you know what I mean and you can tell fun stories and good stories and everything you know but um, I don't I just personally that's just what clicked for me I thought I'm going to have a go at actually writing him and suddenly I kind of felt like do you relate to him a bit? Yeah, not just because. And that. I like writing old grumpy dread. I would be no good writing first year on the street straight. I don't think I'd be I'd be good for that at all. But as he gets older and grumpier, I think I kind of I kind of feel a lot of it as well. And I think he's essentially a selfish person as well. I think it's all for his own motives. That's just my read on it. I don't think it's Jones, but might agree. I think if a law is like, there's a line in one of my stories which is, um, if uh, if he you know we're just lucky that he's. He's in the uniform because if he wasn't in the uniform, he'd still be out there in the streets killing a bunch of mm-hmm. people, basically. But, uh, but yeah, that's just my take on him. But,
0: but also, you've both uh, written Mega City uh, Underground, um, so in a way, you've got to work in the marginalia, for a better word, you got to kind of like create minor characters that might then have all purpose in that world. Was that a good way of kind of working your way into that narrative? Yeah, I mean, that's for me. That is far more
1: interesting. You start with a, a totalitarian world, and you find out what sort of freakishness occurs in the margins. That's I, I could do that all day long. That's why I get worried about writing dread because he's the he's the the barrier beyond which you do not pass. Um, but Rod, it turns out, relates to dread. So
2: <laughs> I'm essentially a fascist. <laughs> a one, a there is no
0: helmet. It's just head. <laughs> Some comic writers, uh, one believes, uh, want to get into the industry because they have a favourite character that they absolutely want to write. And I'd like to think none of you had that motive, um, but you all have worked on licensed characters. As such, was there any excitement there or did you just see it as a job?
3: Um, It very much depended on what the character was. Um, When I came to write Punisher for the first time, I I thought, this will be fun, this will be easy. It's just one long gunfight. Instead, I found myself getting more and more bound up with the character, and the stories became darker and more serious, and eventually we chopped one series and began a new one, the Max book. Um, There's a little more to it than that. Uh, I was heavily influenced by what had happened on on 9-11, and I I wanted to explore a different view of the world. Um, And instead, I found myself finding... Frank Castle an incredibly easy character to write Um, not because I really share any of his values or anything but because I can treat him as a as a kind of force of nature a thing that happens when pressure builds up like a hurricane or a typhoon Um, to the point that I when I write Frank now I I think I'll always be writing Frank uh, that there's a kind of an ease to it that it's it feels like coming home almost the rest of them it varied. Um, I was delighted to get the chance to write John Constantine, um, but in recent years, I, I think I've gone off that character a bit. Uh, I find something. I find there's something essentially dishonest about him. Um, it, in what way? <laughs> um, well, he's supposed to. He, he's supposed to be this left wing figure, um, and yet when you look at his personal politics, they're, they're the most monstrous monstrously right wing I mean he basically uses people up, he, um, he knows exactly what's going to happen when he, when, when he meets someone, when, when he drags them into his world, I'll, I'll do you a favour, you know, then maybe you can do one for it's me, and he knows what's going to happen to them and he lets it keep happening anyway. Mm-hmm. Part of that is the problem with taking a character who was created as, broadly speaking, an essentially realistic one. I'm keeping them going for 20 or 30 years and seeing the same thing happen over and over again.
0: Mm. I mean, it's interesting though, guys, <coughs> when you've worked on comics for a while, it seems they either start off as serious and they turn into comedy, or they start off as comedy and turn serious. So Preach, uh, Punisher started off as a comedy and became serious. Yeah. Um, Hellblazer, you started writing seriously, and then when you came back after a break, did Marquette That's, Marquette. Right. Story. That's right. That was mm-hmm. carry. On,
3: that was um, carry on. Constant time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I was still quite fond of the character at that point. Um, but uh, it, you know, maybe that story didn't work as well. To be fair, nice art by Higgins. So. Mm.
0: Uh, you guys have both worked on licensed characters. I mean, most recently, Sy, si, um, you've written a number of Hensonverse, if I can call mm-hmm. them uh, comics. Um, I mean, Power of the Dark Crystal was an adaptation of a screenplay, <coughs> while well, I guess with Labyrinth you were more free to do your own thing. But you are still having to fit in with pre-existing mm-hmm. characters. Was that a challenge or enjoyable? I mean, obviously you don't want to sign off publishing Yeah, so I was rubbish. Hated <laughs> it. no, it's, it's both. It's always both with a licensed character. You, um,
1: At the risk of sounding like a hack, you cannot take work-for-hire licensed character, shared universe stuff, unless you are skilled at finding a way to be interested in something. And if you're very lucky, it's a character or a world you're already interested in. Great. But you will still have to leap hurdles, because there'll be somebody telling you where and what you can't do, where and what you can do. Um, when I was a kid, I loved both those movies. So it was easy to, to sort of wrap my head around the idea of doing it. But you're still working on somebody else's property. And, and especially with that sort of stuff, Weirdly, more so with that than with a sort of shared superhero-y thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Everybody is very protective over the original IP. You can't do anything that would seem to stain the original movies. Oddly enough, so the the Dark Crystal one was abstractly based on a screenplay, but it was a screenplay that never got made, and if I may whisper it, it probably never got made because it wasn't very good. and so they gave us the kind of core of the screenplay and said, go and do whatever you want with everything else. And that's great because it's like, I don't, I don't desperately need to worry about the beats of the story. I just get to invent stuff in the margins. Um, Labyrinth, which was ostensibly make something new up. There's lots of people going, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do that. Um, and in both cases on those, those licenses, I ended up stepping off, sharing the project with somebody else because I had other things going on. Life was so mad, but it was hard and
0: frustrating. Mm-hmm. And you, Robert, you've worked on all sorts of different kinds of licenses. You can mm-hmm. see characters, whether it's Robocop, whether it's Star Wars, and now Roy's the Ropers. Presumably, all of those different projects, bring different challenges.
2: They do, yeah. It's, um, it's that thing of trying to do something interesting with it, but an awareness you can't move the world on that much. You know, you can't... Um, especially when you've done stuff I mean we, we I did Doctor Who for a couple. well, we did Doctor Who for, we did. For, for a couple of years. And um and that was kind of like they gave us I think you try and find ways to make the the stories feel like they
1: matter. So with that it was inventing brand new companions. I just remember we wrote an entire arc about the Daleks without showing a single Dalek. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> we were told there was a rights issue, that's right. Yeah, we couldn't show the Daleks and we'd already written them in, so it was a kind of um but um but yeah, but so we 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 gave sort of like we invented new uh, companions. So you know, nothing bad's gonna happen to the doctor. But hopefully, you make people care about the companions, and those characters have a certain sort of, amount of sort of a stakes. Creator. Yeah, stakes. Yeah. Um, but it's funny actually that Doctor Who run we did. I was thinking about this the other day. I think there's some really really good comics in there. We would, we tried some challenging stuff. I'm not entirely sure why we threw so much, at <laughs> it, but we kind of. Um, uh, 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 but uh, you also get a thing you're aware, the only people who are ever going to read Doctor Who comics are Doctor Who fans. You're not going to get the outside world to read those things.
1: Yeah, are people too.
2: Yeah, true. But you can be doing some of the most challenging comics work structurally and things like that, which we did. Um, and yeah, no, no, one, no one's aware of it outside, mm. outside of that. But um, yeah, quite fond of those mm. ones.
0: But some of that actually come from the source material, not in terms of the story, but actually the structure. Because, like, Stephen Moffat at times made Doctor Who incomprehensible, in a good way, but, <laughs> you know, thinking, oh, well, if the show can be that complicated, so can
2: the comic. When you start playing around with time travel, you can really get your knickers in, the twist in a twist in a storytelling kind of structural kind of way. I, I pitched a, which was a good idea at the time, where time was running backwards, so page 22 of a comic was, was actually the end of the comic, but the Doctor and everyone, was, the story ran backwards, but the Doctor realises that someone's reversed time. And he starts acting against, he's the only one acting forward while the storyline is running backwards. I, I pitched that and I thought it was an interesting thing to do and then got halfway through and just went, I can't do this. My, <laughs> mind, my mind is dribbling out of my nose and ears while I'm writing this. And I was so close to sort of telling the editor, look, we need to knock this on the head. I mean, I, there was like, what's it, a flux capacity? No, no, what's <laughs> a what, there's, an, there's an armband. The, yeah, and, I know
0: what you mean. And there's a
2: storytelling conceit which got me out of it and I was like, Christ for
0: that. Thank you very
2: much.
0: Um, obviously you've all collaborated with a variety of different artists. Um, how much do you find yourself changing your style or even the amount of information that you're putting in the script depending on the artist that you're working with? Not at all. Okay.
3: Really. Um, sometimes I'll be working with someone uh, who I have plenty of experience with and they're used to me. Um, other times it'll be someone new, but until you work with someone, you won't know their particular quirks, so you wouldn't know how to write to them anyway. Mm-hmm. And I find that my scripts are so brief and contain only the amount of information necessary that there's really, there's no need to adjust. Mm-hmm. Sometimes what I, what I will do is I'll work quite closely with artists because it, perhaps, perhaps my scripts are for some people deceptively simple. It's one line, but everything in that line counts. And there are times I've had to say to people, no, go back and look at it, It, draw what it says there. If I've said in the foreground, someone is smiling, but he can't see the guy in the background leaning on the bar, grinning at him. Well, both of those are equally important. You need to give me both of those. They're there for a reason. Yeah, the guy in the background cannot be a silhouette. The guy in the foreground can't be just a partial shot of an arm. So things like that, sometimes you have to drag people's attention back to to what you've written. Um, I I sometimes get the feeling that plain English is a bit deceptive for some people. (laughs) Um, But for the most part, people I've worked with for a long time, you fall into a kind of an easy rhythm and they understand. Uh, So I've no real need to adjust.
2: I, I think you're only as good as the artist you're working with. You can write the best script you've ever written and an artist can butcher it. And you can write a fairly mediocre script and an artist can make it sing and make you look better than you are. So I think when you find collaborators who you know get what you're aiming for and sell it, you cling on to them for, you know, it's a godsend. Because especially when working for, very often working sort of, um, in my experience working for the big two, very often you're you Marvel or DC, you're not. Um, told sometimes who's drawing your comic and the thing turns up and they just it doesn't get it you know it doesn't work and sort of you know so um, which is why I think we all we, we all have favourite collaborators and we, we know that they they that they can they can get across what we're aiming for and you know it's um, yeah
1: yeah that I mean it's um, when you don't know who's going to draw it my my there's that old joke about, I didn't have time to write you a short note, so I wrote you a long one. You know, that That's my approach. When I don't know who's drawing the thing, I'll just turn it into a... It's like an Alan Moore script, you know? It's like a beautiful, avuncular letter to somebody you don't know, um, but not beautiful in my case. Mm-hmm. And um, that's quicker than your approach. I mean, I, I wish I could do that. I wish I could write a sentence to express everything that takes me half a page to write, and I can't... Um, when I know who I'm working with, and especially if I like who I'm working with, then the whole thing changes. Um, and I'm able to write specifically to them. Again, it's, it's, it's a sort of communique rather than a, a set of instructions. Um, and you look for the strengths of the artist and you lean into them. Um, yeah, it's funny, uh, Brian K. Vaughan was over at Thought Bubble a couple of years ago and I had a drunken conversation with him. And he said, it's really simple, the key to his success. Find an artist who makes you feel like they're making your work better and keep working with them. And that's a wonderful luxury. If you can do that, then do it. Um, in practice, you end up working with all sorts of people, and mostly they're good. Yeah.
2: You get, you could, it can turn you, the way you can turn you into a bad writer is when you, you can write, for instance, like a sequence, which is a silent sequence, where it's all sort of acting performances, and you think, obviously great. be great. And then the, if the artist can't sell that, then, you've got to then go in and write horrible expositionary dialogue or something which because I am running. Exactly, and you have to sort of, the characters have to start saying because it's not clear what's going on from the pages through and, and suddenly you're aware that you, you are not as good a writer when that's <laughs> going to come out because you're writing dialogue and you hate just to explain the story.
3: Yeah, uh, some of you are probably, maybe all of you are familiar with the movie Full Metal Jacket. Uh, there's a scene in that where Matthew Modine is getting a bollocking because he's wearing a uh, peace button on his flak fist. Um, and the colonel delivering the bollocking says, Son, all I've ever asked of my Marines is that they obey my orders as they would the word of God. Well, the artists <laughs> I work with, that's pretty much what <laughs> I <do. laughs> And it works. It works.
0: Like I said, you've all worked on um, 2008 or related titles and American um, comics which means that you've written uh, stories that are kind of eight pages of A4, you've written 22 pages of American-sized comic, you've written stories that are self-contained, you've written stories of serials. As such, would you recommend to anyone who's trying to break into the industry to try to handle all of those different formats so that they can either, I guess, um, be prepared for what's thrown at them or actually just have an idea about structure in these terms?
3: I would... I would tend towards the American format, just because that's probably where you're going to end up, unless your ambitions lie very specifically in the UK in the, with the anthology format. Um, I like the American format, it gives the story room to breathe. That said, writing an eight or ten pager has a certain charm all its own, um, writing the Code Prue series for Cinema Purgatorio. Uh, I found myself writing in a format I hadn't in years, and um, just recently I've written a couple of strips. Uh, Rebellion are putting out action and battle specials next year, and I've written a story for each. And getting it all into ten pages was good fun. It was. It was. Uh, I wouldn't say I'd call it an exercise. It certainly had its own charm, but for the most part, I, I think you have to think in terms of overall story and you, you have to give the story room to breathe and you do want those extra pages you do want you do want to think about whether you call what you do gra- a graphic novel or not you are ultimately going to be doing a long story that, that will be delivered in little chunks but will live hopefully in perpetuity as a longer 150 200 page story um a novel graphic or not i think it's good discipline
1: one of the first things that uh, I actually listened to in all those rejection letters of two thousand and eight was, here's a bit of advice, buy an American 22-page comic and try and retell that story in five pages. It's not as hard as you might think, but it's not going to be a good comic as a result. So yeah, it's good discipline to try and, to try and tell stories, I think, in that, that kind of high octave. Like Diggle was always uh, a shot of rocket fuel rather than a slow marathon. That was always his thing. Um, but, yeah, in, it is clearly a lot more fun and, frankly, a lot more artistically rewarding working in a slightly longer form for the reasons you say. You can, you can be more creative with pace and rhythm in a way that you just can't in a shorter story. But I do that. There's something to be said for the six page 2000
2: format where it's just like start middle end and get out cliffhanger. And that teaches good practice mm-hmm. as well. But then, if you can take that into the American format, I think that's why a lot of sort of British writers sort of do so well with the American. They're so used to they they get trained in that sort of the basics of sort of you know don't mess about and you know cliffhanger and all all those good storytelling practices. So um, yeah, it's good to try
0: both. Well, Rob, I guess you were in the unusual position that *Roar of the Rovers* back in the day only ever existed as I don't know how long probably eight pages in Mm. an, an anthology, and now it's graphic novels. So reinventing, uh, you
2: know, a character in a different style and a different way of storytelling. Yeah, I think because they're 50-page graphic novels, so that is kind of interesting. But it's also trying to come in with an awareness when it's for, ostensibly for, for young adults and it's, for you know, for kids. So you're trying to kind of simplify your story, make your storytelling a bit more direct, which I actually think is quite healthy, I've found. I've quite enjoyed it. Um, but um, you, you can't get carried away and go through all those pretentious structural things, basically. You just, um, sometimes it's something to be said for like just a
1: direct story. Basically. So no story where Roy the rovers goes backwards through time. What's yeah. happening next you? <laughs> I
0: like that. I, I mean, Sai, you've written novels as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, writing in that style and format, did that make any difference to your comic writing? Or did writing comics change the way that you write novels?
1: A good question. I mean, the, the standard answer is that the two media are so different in approach that they might as well not be related in any way. Um, that said, I am a dreadful waffler when I come to write panel descriptions, so maybe that's because I'm used to just hitting keys and getting to the point slowly. Um, I like to think that the dialogue is the important part of the script, right? That's what the reader sees. That's the only... Um, fingerprint of the writer that is literally visible on the page when the reader reads the comic. So um, I'm less bothered about how the script reads than I am and how the dialogue reads. And as long as your dialogue is exactly what it should be, then um, prosy or condensed, however you want to approach it. In terms of long mean, this is why it's a good question, it takes a long time to unpack and I won't waffle I will waffle, but I'll try not to waffle.
0: Do
1: you want waffles, yeah, no <laughs> stale, delicious waffles. Um, writing a novel is an exercise in endurance. You will complete your first draft, and it'll be shit. It will be shit. Nobody has ever written the first draft of a novel that was good. So you start from a position of I'm going to spend however many months in pain, and I will get to the end of that. And rather than going hooray, I finished, you'll go this is awful, and now I need to start from the beginning again. And that simply isn't how comics work, mm. because you are collaborating from almost the get-go. There are exceptions, but that's, that's the treadmill experience. So no, the two things just don't, don't equate at all. Okay.
0: How much uh, is genre of importance to you guys? Because I'm not even thinking superheroes as a genre, but things like, I mean, you obviously love war comics, Garth. Um, things like detective dramas and then whatever kind of character you're dealing with, be it a superhero or a time traveling football player, um, using that kind of idea of genre as the backbone to storytelling? Mm-hmm. I've broken Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <myself>. <laughs> Sorry.
1: I don't believe in genre, that's why.
2: No, I don't think I did. Good it, line. it doesn't particularly... It's not something I, I think about a lot, really. Like you say, you just whatever you're telling, you just want to try and tell it. A good story,
3: yeah. I
1: avoid some, uh, love others. I just think it's stupid. It's like um, horror, western, romance you know, that's a way that you feel, uh, a time and a place, and a thing that happens in a story. These descriptions don't actually tell you anything about the stuff going on in the story. We've got these horrible, arbitrary, artificial things that we slot our stories into. When actually we're just trying to tell a good story. Yeah, basically
2: we just—I've got a book coming out next year called *Old Haunts*, and it's like it's a bunch of gangsters in, in LA at the end of their careers, and they get haunted by their past crimes. And you could see sort of marketing going: Well, do we market this as like a crime book or as a or as a horror book? And you go, well, it, it's both. It's just can, can like it it's, about the, it's about the characters, you know. It's yeah. It's so uh, tend not to. That's what other
1: people worry about. I think.
2: I mean, even superheroes—that's not a genre.
0: No, well, that's what i saying. But I you guess, see, the, a superhero book
1: is a book that has people in masks and capes in it. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, they're actually crime stories. If you if you subscribe to there being such a thing as a crime story, um, or war stories, or whatever mysteries, you know.
0: I guess there are also kind of modes of storytelling. You know, things that are done in a more TV style, things that are done in a more cinematic style, things that are perhaps really, perhaps a more literary style. Has that ever come into your thinking when you're writing? I mean, Garth, I was just reading, um, one of your latest comics, uh, a walk through hell right. and that seems to be influenced by both kind of police procedurals and horror movies.
3: Mm. Yeah. Um, I should say I, I don't really mind the notion of genre. It's a, it's a good sort of lazy shortcut for actual thinking. And I'll always, you. I'll always go for that. Mm. Um, as, as to the notion of, um, Well, you mentioned a walkthrough, yes, that's a police procedural. Uh, It's influenced by the crime dramas of the past sort of 15, 20 years or so. Uh, It's also a horror story. It's also influenced by the current political situation, both sides of the Atlantic. Um, It's just the the grab bag that I decided to chuck all that into, I suppose.
0: And thinking of um, politics, I mean, obviously it's. important um, to your work, Garth, but I mean for all three of you, I guess things kind of slip into your subconscious um, because of what's going on in the world at any time, but how often do you find that does enter your work and how often is it surprising that it's entered your work and how often is it intentional?
1: Oof, I think you have to be so careful, I, I mean I've messed up, like the, I did a a shadow miniseries and it was so on the nose about you know sort of the rise of the, the right and the Trumpian politics and I stand by it, I think it's pretty decent but that was not the place to do that story And um, I still get quite a lot of angry messages drifting to me through social media. Um, it's just about dealing with it responsibly, you drop it in if the context is right. I'll give you an example the, the new Hellblazer series, for reasons I will not go into now the whole point is that John's been away. He's been away for an indeterminate amount of time and we're dropping him back into the world. And for the first time, he's lonely. He doesn't know anybody. He hasn't got anybody to throw under the
3: bus.
1: (laughs) So he looks around the world, and he goes, holy shit, who's in charge? What's on the news every day? This is mad. Something's gone wrong. And that's the starting point. And you can, through the eyes of a character, whether or not they are some cipher for your own perspective, that's when you can Um, Legitimately talk about politics in a way that doesn't feel like you're just fisting your views into people's open mouths. As an image, yeah.
2: (laughs) The the first one, a book I did was Class War, and it's called Class War for God's sake. And I was thinking back on it; is it it feels like it's like an unsophisticated sort of punk song with three chords, but sometimes there's a lot to be said for an unsophisticated punk song with three chords. you know what I mean but uh, not all
3: the time it gets boring if you do it all the time but every now and again yeah there's a, there's always that influence I mean uh, I wrote a walk through hell because of the current situation I wrote Crossed about 10 years ago because of my feelings about the the uh, second Bush administration um, I mentioned the Punisher when I went from the sort of madcap first series to the Max book that was because um, when 9-11 occurred, uh, no, I was not in New York at the time, but I do live there now and i spent a great deal of time, there. It's my, my favourite place in the world, and the effect that day had on the place and the people, um, where there was this ghastly shock, this sense of, oh God, this is what the world is like. And I, th- I saw the Punisher really as the perfect vehicle with which to explore that. Not the specifics of what happened on 9 11, but that view of the world where terrible, terrible things happen that bring everything to a juddering standstill. It, it really was the perfect vehicle for it. So, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I think I'll always do that kind of material. Cool. Uh,
0: we've got about 20 minutes left. So, if we could raise the um, house lights a bit um, so I can actually see the audience. If anyone has any questions for anyone on the panel, please raise a hand and don't be shy. At the bar. Yeah, at the back. Um, I was wondering, uh, when it comes to research, how do you know when to stop and uh, enough's enough, or if you need to do research at all for a certain
3: piece? question. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I write a lot of military fiction, and a lot of that comes from reading military history. And some of the books I read um, give me something to write about on practically every page, and there is a massive temptation to cram everything in, and you do, you do feel the need to to step back, think about what's really important, uh, and chop the extraneous stuff. But yes, you're right. You do have to stop yourself from going too far from getting everything in. Um, another example i wrote a punisher story once called the slavers about human trafficking and um, i think doing the research for that it was uh, how it came about was i said to my wife i'm tr- sort of wondering who to let frank loose on next she said read this and it was a three page article about human trafficking and I, I hadn't really i knew it existed but i didn't uh, I haven't thought about the specifics of it and i think after reading that article it was the only time I really wanted there to be a Punisher <laughs> in the world uh, where I thought just, just to deal with this one problem, it would be nice if there was a guy who just took them all out um, and reading the, reading the stories, the examples of things that happened to the women and kids who were trafficked. There was an enormous temptation to get every last one of them into the story um there is this if you're familiar with it there's a scene where frank um as he goes to a social worker <laughs> oddly enough, um because he, he wants to look at her files because she can help him uh, and she has just given a lecture and she explains that she had to leave a stuff a lot of stuff out of her lecture about human trafficking because it was too upsetting and the examples she cites are taken directly from the the article i i read Um, That's something where, yes, I I very much had to resist temptation.
1: Did you see Chernobyl? They do that amazing thing where there is no way that they could have told the story with all the many, many characters who contribute to the eventual denouement. So they openly, and they say this in the credits at the end, invent a character, a female character, who is there to act as a sort of representative of all the others who, who were there on the way. I think that's a really nice example of researching so much that you know what matters and then finding a narrative solution that feels honest without necessarily hinging entirely upon the detail. Yeah, you've got to care about the characters as a bottom
2: line, I think. And it's like, I mean, I just wrote the Destroyer short for this battle special. And it was a. You find, like, the actual, as Gar says, the, the. events of the there's something called the St. raid Raid um, in World War 2 and when you do some research on that the events of it are just extraordinary but you, at the end of the day it's got to be an individual's journey and you actually have to tell it, otherwise you're just filling every panel with information and that's just not good good story or good comics yeah. you know what i mean so you can you can if you're not careful you can find yourself Doing that and you become an it becomes a little exposition yeah. machine of fascinating facts, but we want to care about a character and we want to see what That's their right. personal journey is. It's, it's also really
3: yeah, useful to have a bunch of war geeks in your friendship. <laughs> so that helps. if you've got a question, they'll just answer it for you. You can accidentally commit that cardinal sin of comics where you have a caption saying what's in the picture, right. which is a complete bloody waste of yeah. time. Yeah. You know, uh, you you have a scene where a bunch of tanks lurch forward against an enemy position and the captain reads, and then the tanks move forward against them.
2: Why did you bother?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose the opposite is, I was talking to Michael Lark yesterday, and he said when he's uh, drawing Lazarus, and, and Greg just puts in the of you know, draw a rifle, and draw a rifle and then get told off that it wasn't accurate enough. <laughs> so he's now got to the position, what, what kind of rifle do you want? What kind of vehicle do you want? So sometimes the artist needs to interrogate the writer more.
3: Well, the writer should put that on the script, I think.
0: Any other questions? Uh, Yeah, Uh, You talked about the uh, writing to the artist, and sometimes you do have to uh, adapt your writing style to an
3: artist or to get the story across. Do you find you often have to change your writing style to the uh, publisher that you're uh, uh, working for? For example, when you're writing uh, your titles for Boom, do you feel that you have to change your writing style to f- work with that particular um, the style of books that the boom group bring out and for example go after yourself when you did the books for Aftershock because mm. it is a new title, do you feel that you have to adapt your writing for the publisher? Not really, I mean they they come to us because they want what we do uh, you know there's no, there's no point in coming to us and saying we want you to do what you do but, but more like this more sort of like this, there's, that's pointless um, so no, there, there's there's no sense of really changing anything for uh, for a particular publisher. I mean, only only when I work for Marvel and DC, more DC than Marvel, is there a vague sense that could be a problem here if I push my luck. But then on the other hand, you know, if I if I've chosen to tell the story in the first place. Um, there Again, everyone knows what they're getting and I know what I'm getting into, so I don't I change anything so much, uh, but we're all aware of, everyone's aware of who they are and what they've asked for and what they're getting into.
1: I think I only got upgraded once. And it was by Marvel, and they asked me to stop writing such long panel descriptions because the translators were going mad. <laughs> <laughs> because a lot of the artists will not speak English as a first language, and, and that's the difference. If you know who you're working with, especially if you know that you can communicate with them in the same language, then life becomes a lot easier. Uh,
2: I think, well, Gas, so ideally, it's like, yeah, they know if they ask you to do a job, they, they you know they want your take on something, but problems come when they start trying to do that. And it does happen, it's happened to me, but they're kind of like, oh, can it be a bit more like this? And you like, well, it's probably- Why did you ask? Yes, yeah, so we're going in a bad direction here. It's not necessarily a good thing, probably. mm mm-hmm. Garth was saying, when he was writing John Constantine, that
0: first you were quite fond of him mm-hmm. as a character, but you feel a little bit differently about him now.
1: Too early to say whether, I mean, weirdly enough, I didn't love him to start with. I, I love the stories he's in. I think it's funny, I would describe him as a ridiculously honest character, but not in the way he treats people. He is clearly a liar and a snake and a weasel, but he knows that. He is one of the most self aware characters I can think of. He knows he's going to throw you under the bus, he knows he's going to fuck up. He also knows that having done so, He's going to spend a week feeling bad about it. And then he does it anyway. And that's fascinating because it speaks to addiction, it speaks to weakness, it speaks to um, some flaw, some mental flaw, which requires him to keep doing the same dreadful things for the right reasons. And it's questionable whether they're for the right reasons. And there's just so much compelling stuff in there to unpack he doesn't pretend to be a hero, he doesn't claim to speak for anybody, he doesn't really even believe in doing the right thing, he's just sort of trying to help wherever he comes across something that seems like it needs to be helped. What I'm enjoying, the difference I have made, is that, I said it before, he's always had a circle of people, it's almost become a joke in previous stories where you know, he's, he's, he's been around for what, 30 years now, something mm. like that? He's got this limitless list of friends. He must have been extremely prolific at making (laughs) friends as a boy, so that at any moment he can pick up the phone and call a friend and then betray them. And I love the idea that for the first time he just knows nobody. And so the first thing he does, because it's instinctive for somebody like him, is try to collect people. And he does it in a way that is, in today's world, quite politically incorrect. And in fact, the first, in the, in the omnibus, so there's a special we're putting out this month, which is all about bridging the gap between where he's been and why he's coming back. Next month, the first issue of the new ongoing launches, and the first we see of him is standing in a pub telling a deeply offensive joke because he thinks that's how you make friends. But the world's changed. You do that now and you get thrown out of the pub, and that's what happens to him. So this is a, it, it's an interesting, mean, look let's not get into representation because you've got three straight white men on stage talking about it and we are literally the most boring representative group there is in the world but one of the things we can do earnestly and honestly as straight white men is to tell stories about how awful other straight white men are and that's that's Constantine.
3: One of the things that influenced my view of Constantine was if we say that Constantine at a certain point uh, was a a, a type known as the lovable rogue, or he had certain aspects of that type anyway. Well, I knew a couple. Uh, guys I liked very much, guys I loved hanging out with. I don't know if you ever had this experience with a person like that. The person who comes into the room and just lights it up, who everyone's fascinated by. And then, in a couple of instances, I met older friends of theirs people who'd known them much longer than I had, and they had a completely different take. Maybe not completely different, maybe sometimes it was, yeah, you want to watch him. (laughs) You want to watch him because, let me tell you about and then you'd hear something that, well, I heard a couple of stories that brought me up short, and I began to think of Constantine in those terms. I thought, you know, if you did survive friendship with him, you'd have a very different outlook to the person who met him in a pub and was utterly charmed by him. There's a lot of Constantine
1: and Cassidy. It, it strikes me.
3: exactly. That's where that comes from. You know, the guy who the guy who shows up and everybody loves, yep. and then it turns out. I think at one point Jesse talks to someone who knew him back in the, forties or fifties mm. or something like that, and uh, he was a nightmare and he wrecked lives.
1: But it's. I mean, it's funny. We all hate the word problematic, but it is. We are weirdly drawn to problematic characters. I mean, you say the same about the Punisher. You say the same about Dread. These are characters that. You probably wouldn't want to be in the same room as them, but we enjoy reading their stories. Because they're aspirational, even when they're ourselves. Yeah. They'd sort of, yeah. They represent something extremely strongly, whether you agree with it or not.
3: <laughs> um, no, I, I'm, I'm always intrigued to see um, what an artist will come back with. This, this is when, especially if you haven't worked with someone before, um, when it's particularly intriguing. Um, I, I did a book last year called Sarah about a Russian woman sniper from World book. War II. Uh, and I worked with Steve Epting, who I'd never worked with before. I knew who he was, of course, and I'd seen his art. But that story, more than most, I recall thinking, I wonder what he would make of this. I wonder what she'll look like. I wonder what the, the rest of the team, the other six women, will look like. But Sarah, in particular, because there's something quite enigmatic about her, I really was fascinated to see what Steve would come up with. And when I saw her for the first time, I thought, that's not what I was expecting. That's exactly what I was expecting. That's so utterly perfect. Here we go. And it worked out great yeah it's always collaborative
2: but you you describe, you very often have something in mind, but again, if you're working with good people they'll come up with something that you haven't seen or something you know and you twist and it just fits um so um you you can never like it's, it's some it is difficult i mean you know the whole thing of occasionally having to go to someone and go have another go at that you know but um sometimes it's necessary mm. I have nothing to add
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What kind of characters have you ever regretted doing it? Yes. Um, I've regretted the act while understanding how vital it was for the story. Um, I don't know if you read The Boys, but in the run-up to the ending of that, it becomes <coughs> quite murderous, and that's what it felt like. It felt like murder. Um, I hated killing off Billy Butcher. Because he's Sorry, my, spoilers, my yeah. favorite. Yeah, but but we have to assume, yeah. um, because he's my favorite character of all time. But it had to be done. It was the right moment. There was no choice because otherwise the story wouldn't have worked the way it was supposed to.
0: They might keep him alive in the TV show. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote a
2: character, no a well-known character. I wrote a character called Gerhardt, who was a SGS judge in Dread, which I kind of built up. And he had a real arc over several years and, um, and re- recently sort of killed him off, but I did it in a, I wanted to do something like in The Shining when, um, uh, I've forgotten the name of the character, the, the, the black guy, the caretaker comes across the country and just, you think he's coming to save the day and he just turns up and gets an axe. So I, I, I had a story where Dredd was, was buried up to his, his head and, um, and was being starved for, for, you know, for several days by this, car- this bad guy character. And then it turns out when he's finally dug out, he turns around and gerhardt has been dead behind him all the way through. And he just couldn't turn his head to see him, Mm -hmm. which I thought was a really cruel thing to do to a character like built up over years and love, but he didn't even see how he died. He'd just been lying there dead. Um, But I thought afterwards, I I really liked that character, you know, so sometimes you you get excited by the, the story point and it makes total sense. But and also I like the fact that they don't always have they don't have the, you know, fully rounded arcs occasionally. Sometimes
1: people just die. You know what I mean? Cool. I don't, I've been racking my brains. I don't think I've ever killed a character that I didn't create. And it follows that, generally speaking, if I'm killing a character I've created, I knew they were marked for death from the beginning. And so cool. um, I don't recall ever being surprised at myself killing a character. So I, I don't. I mean, you mourn when, when a, a character you've enjoyed writing dies, you mourn when a, f- a story finishes to a greater or lesser degree. But no, I, I, I would like to have been put in a position where I was writing some big licensed work, a superhero that everybody recognizes, just to be able to fucking kill them. <laughs> <laughs> just to see how that feels. But uh, it
3: hasn't happened yet. Conversely, you can kill a character or be about to kill a character only to bring him back. I mean, I uh, I created a character in um, The Punisher called Barracuda and he was a very jolly sort of chap and uh, <laughs> he, uh, his last scene apparently drowning in shark-infested waters after Frank's blasted him with a shotgun. And the editor, Axel Alonso begged me not to kill him, begged me to brag, I can still remember him saying, please man, please think about this, he's got he's got more life in him, so to speak, and I thought about it and I thought, yeah, he really, really does, um, and my, my personal rule writing that book was, you cannot survive two encounters with Frank Castle, mm. you might survive the first by the skin of your teeth, but the second time, no, and so I, I brought Barracuda back and briefly gave him his own miniseries and then brought him back for the big showdown with Frank where they tore chunks out of each other and then, goodbye, that's it, you have to go.
2: But he turned up in Fury Max and stuff. So oh, that was
3: set in the 80s. Yeah, that was set in in the 80s. That's before he's got the teeth, man.
1: No. Yeah. Uh, again, Constantine, in order to achieve what we just talked about, in order to have him wandering around London without many mm-hmm. friends, I had to. one of the first things I had to do was figure out why he doesn't have access to his oldest mate, Chaz. Um, which is quite sad, because Chaz has always been a sort of feature in those stories but it, uh, not having ever written that character myself, that didn't feel like I was kind of being cruel to a character that I had created.
0: Nice. Uh, we're out of time, unfortunately, but I believe that all three of you are doing some more signings as the day progresses. Uh, so if you have a burning question and are prepared to cue, then, then... I feel like we're...
2: supposed. To I think this we're signing a, a immediately after it? this. Yeah, like, going over to
0: the... In the
2: hall yeah. downstairs, oh so. yeah. yeah.
0: Um, if you enjoyed uh, my chat with these three white, uh, heterosexual, <laughs> aged writers, uh, there are plenty more um, on my website, uh, panelborders.wordpress.com. And I'd very much like to thank SciSperia, Rob Williams, and Alex. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers,
3: Alex. Thank you, mate. Uh, I Nightmare.
2: Right. I think so. The armchairs and everything, and the lighting is like let's all just have a quite white.
1: I'll have the one that looks like <laughs> the
2: one with the peacock feather in the knee position.